0: If you're looking for the next best thing to invest in, try investing in your long-term health
1: with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early, which could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. So invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Visit GoForward.com to learn more about how Forward can help you manage your long-term health risks
0: for one flat monthly fee. That's GoForward.com. It's no secret that writing can be lonely work, but does it really have to be? Whether you're full-time, part-time, or just starting out, you'll get insights into the tricks, tips, and production habits of writers from every level of the biz. From best-selling authors to those launching their first novels, you're sure to be in the company of friends as we
1: encourage great writers to divulge and share their secrets. This is the Great Writers Share Podcast with your host, best-selling author, Daniel Wilcox. Hello and welcome to The Great Writer's Share podcast with me, Daniel Wilcox, where every week I sit across the microphone with the talented and the humble writers of this world and try to dissect their processes, mindsets and strategies to give you tips and tricks to further your writing career. Today's date is the 7th of October, which is my sister's birthday. Happy birthday, Becky, if you're listening. You're likely not. This isn't your thing. Um, And today I'm speaking with the Bram Stoker award-winning horror writer, Keelan Patrick Burke. Uh Keelan Patrick Burke is someone who is huge in the horror community. He's big on social media. He's, as I've said uh, in a second ago, he won the Bram Stoker Award um back in 2014 with his book Turtle Boy. And he's someone who came on my old show, The Story Studio, probably about a year and a half ago. And we had a we had a really, really good chat there. Um Keelan's a very, very interesting writer in terms of his processes, how he how he looks at the world, um, and how he manages to keep his integrity in a world that is constantly shifting and trying to increase your pace and make you go faster keelan's someone who he, he's someone definitely that i look up to a lot and uh, we actually go into a lot of interesting topics in this interview um and i had a lot of fun with this one so um definitely listen on but some of the topics that we do cover uh, we go through um wrestling with story um and how some stories don't want to be controlled and we go a bit through Keelan's process into how he deals with that um, and his ongoing battle with his three year in the works novel uh, cultivating an audience on social media Keelan's very very big on places like Instagram and Twitter uh tends to get a big following and has a lot of people who often shout out post pictures of his books and he talks a lot about how that started and how he he keeps that going in sort of interaction with the people who are sharing your work and uh, a lot into dealing with imposter syndrome and a little bit into his cover design business as well. So there's lots of good stuff to go into. But before we get to that, I'm gonna do a quick shout out to the Patreon page, Patreon page. So over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. If you donate as little as a dollar a month, we have a load of extra stuff that you can get from the show. So it's not an obligation. This show will always be free. Um, But if you do want to get a bit more bang for your buck, then we have lots going on over on the Patreon page, including asking the guests of the show questions, getting the episodes in advance and a load of other stuff. But... We do have a brand new patron this week, so I wanted to do a big shout out to Jay Stonesmith. Thank you very much, Jay, for coming on board. Um, Hopefully you're settling into the Slack group and chatting with the other writers and, uh, yeah, just getting involved in everything we've got going on. The monthly giveaway for the Patreon page, so anyone who's a patron at any level gets automatically entered into the giveaway, and this month we'll be giving away Libby Hawker's Take Off Your Pants, which is a fantastic book that is in no way sexual um, and is more about how to take off your pantsing pants. So obviously you've got plotters who plan a lot of their books and you've got pantsers who just fly through and don't do too much planning. Um, and myself, I've I've always been a lot of a pantser when it comes to writing with a little bit of plot. So maybe a planter or a, the other one. <laughs> so I read this book a couple of months ago and it was, uh, it was greatly beneficial in giving me ideas to plan the story to a point where you don't have to create these elaborate, plans that you know that at some point you're gonna go off it uh, when you're writing the book anyway so it's that good balance between planning and panting so it's enough to get you going and out into the into the world of your writing so yeah definitely um a good one to give away so anyone who is a current patron will be entered into a giveaway to win that at the end of this month so jump on over to patreon.com forward slash great Writers share Now, without further ado, we will jump straight into the interview with the wonderful, the talented Keelan Patrick Burke. Keelan Patrick Burke is a writer, cover designer and lifelong fan of the macabre. He has written five novels, over 100 short stories, six collections and edited four acclaimed anthologies. In 2004, Keelan was honoured with the Horror Writers Association's Bram Stoker Award for his novella The Turtle Boy, and he now also designs book covers through his design company Elder Lemon Design. Keelan Patrick-Burke, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Dan. How are you?
1: Doing very well, thank you. It's uh, it's good to have you again. We're just saying before we started recording, it's probably been, I think, about maybe a year and a half since we last spoke. Yeah, has it been that long? Yeah, time, time sort of flies. So uh, how what have you been up to in that in that time period? What's been big on your agenda over the last year or so?
0: Uh, I've been fully committed to getting progressively older <laughs> and uh, a lot less wiser. But other than that, I've been, uh, you know, it's its always the same thing. It's an even split between designing book covers and writing. I've been battling with, which, you know, and it might have been the last time we spoke that I, I was working on it, but I'm still contending with a problematic novel. It's the longest thing I've written, but there's something missing from it and I had to set it aside. Um, my agent, everybody was excited. This is great. We're looking forward to reading it. And I was on the cusp of sending and I thought, no, 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 no. there's something, there's something not fitting about this whole thing. So I, I just left it sit for a while, went back to it. And I still can't identify exactly what the issue is with it. I'm hoping I'll just spring out of bed some night and fly in and write, write the problems out. But it's
1: uh It's an old murder mystery for me, I'm afraid, and I can't find the Butler so you say you're not really sure what that problem was with the novel how do you How do you know that there's something missing if you're not sort of quite sure what it is? What's your sort of process for diagnosing what's missing from, from the novel? you
0: know what I'm not entirely sure i I felt uh, totally you know cool with it while writing it the, the usual dose of writer anxiety and self doubt but it was uh on rereading it, I was very pleased with what I had done and I set it aside as the cooling period, as I like to call it, where just walk away from it, start doing something else, live your life for a while, come back with fresh eyes and look at it again. And it was during that process when I walked away from it, that certain elements of it started to, I don't know, it's, this is the problem. I can't even identify what it is or how it pertains to my usual process, because usually I'm when the story is done, I think, all right, it's done. It's great. I'll go back and edit it a few months later, find all the problems, take them out, fix them, send it off. This isn't working that way for me. I don't know exactly why it's, and the issue is that I don't know what the problem is only that there is one. It's a very, I don't know. It's a very amorphous thing. I'm not, I can't pin it down. And that's what the frustration is. It's just this general sense that the whole novel itself works but not well enough that I'm missing something from it that that perhaps when I was uh, in embroiled in the excitement of the plot and all these little intricacies of it that I forgot something critical and it's not there it's basically like seeing somebody walking around and trying to figure out how they're doing it when you know that most of their bones are missing yeah You know, it's that frustrating to me. It's like, well, this shouldn't be possible. You shouldn't be standing upright if, you're, if your bones are gone. So where are they? And and how do I put them back in without causing both of us too much grief?
1: Absolutely. And so this is part of one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show, actually, is I find I, I don't know how this is going to come across. and I mean, this in the most positive way possible, but I find <laughs> you and your your entire process absolutely fascinating because I actually in speaking to you last time on the story studio sort of a year and a half ago. And I know you were recently on the This Is Horror podcast, which I listened to that episode and you sort of go quite deep into sort of your background, a little bit into cover design. But when I sort of think of you and your work, you come across to me as the very um, romantic idea of what a horror writer is and should be And your process is very sort of, um, I guess, wrapped up in in the muse and the way that the art chooses to display itself as opposed to forcing narratives or forcing stories to work. And I think... Yeah. To me, that process is, I, I, there's something really, really magic and beautiful to it. And I think in the podcast you did with This Is Horror, I think you were talking about this novel and you actually mentioned that you might even get to a point where you just scrap this entire novel and put it aside because it's not working. Yeah. How, do you, how do you decide when you get to that point? And um, I guess how do you sort of keep gripping onto this story and pushing through, even though it seems to want to beat you?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. It's For me, I don't encounter that very often. Now, obviously, I'll be writing something and and at some point, it may occur to me that I'm forcing the story. Like you just said, I'm forcing the story down the wrong path. It just feels like the story is resisting me and I'm pushing against it. This Sisyphean struggle that suddenly came out of nowhere or that I'm forcing characters to behave in a way that they wouldn't logically behave in. And you get away with a certain amount of that within the parameters of the genre or within the framework of the particular type of story that you're telling. But there are almost instinctual pulses sometimes where you had that fish on the line and it got off and another one replaced it. That's not one you're going to want to eat, you know, (laughs) weird, (laughs) weird metaphor. But I'm actually currently writing a novella that's set in an old fishing village, so I think that's on my brain it's right now. It's on the brain,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Fish on the brain. But <laughs> that's also the name of my my first album. But um, <laughs> it's a uh, yeah. It's 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 just kind of a feeling. I mean, I don't I don't really know how to articulate it properly, but it is that sense that comes out of nowhere sometimes, where the writing slows down. You're not suddenly as detached, you know, you, you're not, it's not writing itself. It's not automatic writing anymore. Suddenly you're shoving every word into a box and mailing it to the wrong address. It's just, it just feels like you're pushing against it when it's supposed to flow with you. And it's at times like that, that I walk away from it and I come back and out of the blue, whether it be walking the dog or in the shower or half asleep in bed or asleep, a jolt will come to you going, that's what's missing you're pushing it this way when this is where it goes and you wake up the following morning, rejuvenated, energized, and it works itself out and it's invariably it becomes a far better story, a far more confident and fluid story. And that's when I'm happy with it, Mm. but I've never had an instance where I have undertaken a project so big to me, a novel this long and so intricate. But I think that might also be the problem is that it's the most intricate thing I've written. There's a lot of moving parts, And at least one of those parts, if not a number of them, don't work. And yet when I read them, it all seems to hang together properly. So maybe I'm just delusional and getting in my own way. I have considered that possibility, but I don't think so. I think there's, it's one of those horrible situations that I think if I just left it as it is and sent it to my agent, even if my agent likes it, even if the publisher likes it, readers who are way smarter than anybody in the industry ever gives them credit for would be the first to go pretty good it's a shame that you fucked it up on chapter nine (laughs) and then i'll be there going ah jesus and then it's out there and there's nothing you can do about it and i would much rather never release it than realize that there's some entertainment destroying grenade sitting in the midst of all of those carefully put together words
1: absolutely is that something that is on your mind quite a lot when you think of this novel, or are you at this moment just focused entirely on on that that missing piece? Is there a part of you that does sort of think ahead and feel that that is? I know you said it's not the factor, but that might be some kind of factor that might be sort of pre- putting some pressure on it. Um, it's I think that it uh, kind of,
0: but I mean, the, what's a, what I'm obsessed over now is. Trying to figure out exactly what that problem is, because it, it, it is on my mind all the time that there is one. And I know that if I'm that aware of it and I let this go, then a reader is going to catch it within five minutes. And to a reader, it's going to be plain as day because, you know, just as I'm as well-versed in writing narratives, readers are just as well-versed in, in how they flow and how they work and why they don't. Mm-hmm. And I would much prefer to just let that thing sit idling away in the garage then have a reader the first reader come back to me and say yeah you you, you made a buzz of this hmm.
1: i'd love for you to talk through your process a little bit of writing because obviously the, the the one that you're sort of having a bit of troubles with like you say is one of your biggest works it's a novel and you you've made a lot of success with a lot of shorter work so a lot of your books like sour candy Blanky, uh turtle boy are novellas um is it a reason that you play often to that smaller form? How do you sort of take an idea or a concept and take it from your head onto the paper? What does that look like for you?
0: It's usually actually a very long process. I mean, I I, I can only assume it's typical of other writers. I don't know. I, I haven't really gotten that deep into it with other writers. But for me, it tends to be something like with Sour Candy, where I'm just out on a Saturday afternoon and I walk into a store and the first 10 pages of what's in Sour Candy actually occurs with the screaming kid and the mother looking <laughs> dead-eyed. and But that will that'll plant a seed, but it could be two, four, six years before it actually comes back to me in a way that's cogent and, and suggests that there's more there to be explored and that I'm ready to write it. It was the same with Kin, the novel, when that idea initially occurred to me, it was two years before I wrote it. And I let them sit and percolate for as long as they need. And then when I write them, I will only write them for as long as they need to be. I I don't set out and say, this is going to be a novella, or this is going to be a novel. With short stories, I generally do. I'll say, okay, well, this idea is so small and self-contained that I only need 10, 20 pages to tell it. But with novellas, I'll start with the idea that excites me. And I, I, the whole hook of it excites me. And I'll sit down, and start writing it, and it could take me two weeks to write it. It could take me two months, but it'll go as long as it needs to go, and I don't force it. And novellas, for me, I'm one of those people who argues that it's the perfect length for, not just for stories, but for the horror genre. I think you can get everything you need. You can get the characters developed. You can get the action in there. You can have ample room for exploration of the mythology or the idea. You can do it all and not have the reader skimming or checking how many pages are left. I don't know. It's always struck me as, as just absolutely ideal for what we do. Mm. So I am drawn to those. And plus you can get them done quickly. If I'm sitting down to like this novel that I'm talking about, this will have been phew, three years now from inception to execution. And I'm still not done with it. And we live in those kind of, you know realities where if you don't have a book out every five minutes people forget who you are
1: Yeah, it's definitely a it uh, seems to be a changing landscape of independent publishing at the minute and like you said definitely. got a lot of people that are pushing those those quick books and i myself am playing a part of that at the minute which is why i i love your approach because you seem to be doing very very well out of taking your time coming out with these ideas that are unique they're really really well executed and i can obviously speak that because i've read a few of those as well and uh i'm a big fan of your work how thank you how do you view the landscape of indie publishing at the minute and how do you hold true to the values that you set in writing when a lot of the world is changing around you
0: it's definitely a a compromise i think that Primarily the indie publishing excites me. It you know, I was wary of it like I am of all new things, like any old man shaking his fist <laughs> at the clouds, you know. What is this strange and frightening thing? It's gonna destroy <laughs> me. But I mean, honestly, my background is more in independent publishing anyway. I started with the small press publishers, went about as far up that chain as I could go with that. And the problem was that they were limited edition publishers, so while they did pristine, beautiful editions with great care taken with them they very rarely exceeded about a 2,500 maximum um, amount of copies. So for all the praise and adulation and critical, you know, um, whatever the word, critical uh, acclaim you might get for any of these, very few people ended up reading them. So what excited me about independent publishing is that, one, it forced you into learning the ins and outs of publishing in a way that you maybe were shielded from before. It it was the perfect intermediate step between limited edition publishing and mass market publishing where you're basically going to college. Here's why cover art's important. Here's why formatting is important. Here's why editing, proofreading, all of these things are critical. And here's how absolutely instantaneous you can go from having a book that got great praise for the last 10 years to being butchered because you formatted it wrong. Mm. It is trial by fire and it forces you to learn all that stuff, which is invaluable. And, you know, um, and it's quick rather than sending off a manuscript to a New York publisher back in the day and waiting four years to be told no. And there's a certain value in that too. I'm I'm not disregarding. I'm not one of these people who runs out in the snow with a flamethrower and (laughs) starts saying the gatekeepers need to die. I don't believe that at all. Um, and obviously the objective is still to have that kind of a career where you can do all of it, but it definitely was an educational experience for me. And I, I think there's an awful lot of work out there in independent publishing that is absolutely phenomenal. There are new names rising all the time that deserve to on the flip side of that. There's a lot of dreck out there, but that's no different than mass market publishing was in the eighties or, you know, the small press was one of these people were suddenly, deciding to be publishers who had no idea what they were doing Mm. but yeah i mean for me it's been invaluable um but to get back to your question the process had to change whereas once i was railing against the expediency of it all i realized there's a value in that too i can't force relevancy i can't put crap out there that I happen to have sitting in a bottom drawer just so people have something to read. I won't do that. And and I've had publishers write to me and say, hey, listen, we know everything you've written has been published to you, but you've got to have stuff in a drawer somewhere. And I says, yeah, but there's a reason it's in the drawer. And honestly, I'd rather it stayed there. I don't think there's that. So, oh, sorry. No, no, no. You're fine. I, I mean, you know me. I tend to prattle <laughs> on. You call me for a half hour interview, and six hours later, you're lying there gasping for water on the floor. That's just, that's what I want. <laughs> I've I've never been accused of brevity in my life. No,
1: fair enough. <laughs> now I was going to say, I uh, I think that's one of the again one of the things I admire about you is that is that holding that integrity over your work and 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 being true to form. And I think there there seems to be a bit of a balance at the minute in people who are trying to publish quick just to build a solid backlist and obviously yeah. if you build that backlist too quickly it might not necessarily reflect your best work and won't exactly be the the life raft that keeps your career afloat yeah. but you've got this this backlist of um incredible works that are, are seem to be doing well for you seem to continually be selling obviously this time of year being october is always going to be uh, you know a horror writers wet dream um so Oh yeah. yeah, I love this time of year. You just see the sales spike. I mean, we see it with, um, the other stories podcast for some reason, October hits and all of our horror stories, just, they get downloaded tenfold. Um, but.
0: Well, that's also because it's a very good show. I mean, you know, it's one thing to say that it's, it's the time of year where things get popular, but the time of year doesn't matter if what you're putting out there isn't any good.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so yeah with the in terms of people who are publishing fast one thing that i have noticed and i'd love to get your thoughts on this because um i'm very curious to see if if this will hit the horror genre is with horror generally whether it's with the actual story whether it's with sort of the the history of the horror writers and and their process there seems to be a bit more care i guess taken it seems to be a bit of a slower process in terms of of producing the work and one thing that i keep thinking that we will see on the horizon i'm waiting to see when it will happen and wondering how that will look is the the fast quick turnaround sort of rl stein um for adults version of horror do you think that's something that we might might see in publishing within the next few years
0: yeah definitely i think that it's constantly evolving and while we're all kind of nailed to the romantic idea and i know i certainly am of um you know, uh, the book club hardcovers and the hard, mass market hardcover, all of this and mass market paperback in your books are in airports and all that kind of stuff. And people are obviously still doing that and that's great. I do think that it's going to, it's going to get to a place where that constant reader demand and the immediacy of publishing now is going to make it so that if you're not the kind of writer who can put stuff out, fast enough uh, that I don't know you're in as endangered as back in the days where if you didn't sell a certain amount of mass market paperbacks, they've just ripped the covers off them and fired them into a furnace somewhere. Mm. I think you always have an objective and you always have parameters in which you need to work to satisfy both whoever your publisher is, assuming it isn't yourself. And even then it applies or, um, and the readers and plus you know, everybody's doing audio now. Everybody wants that. There was a time when I looked into doing audio books and nobody was interested, A, in doing them and B necessarily in reading them. And that, that when I grew up, I, I listened to one audio book, I thought, and it was only because it was, couldn't find it in paperback. Mm. And I, I don't listen to audio I have nothing against them. I just, I prefer to just read, but now I would say at least on average, twice a week, I get somebody emailing me asking me if they're going to be available, what's available, have I plans for releasing all of this kind of stuff. And that's a whole other side of the market that's gone neglected by me. Mm -hmm. And and I'm I'm a slow learner when it comes to this stuff. So by the time I actually get the books out there, just like with digital and everything else, the market will have moved on to something else. It'll be like, we're now going to laser print Keenan and Patrick (laughs)
1: books Onto your asshole. Yep. Just 3D. So, and here's Keel and Patrick Burke in your living room reading the story.
0: That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And looking at you lasciviously for no good reason. <laughs> just to make you even more uncomfortable. Like, because if the books fail in
1: that regard, I'll just start looking at you inappropriately. <laughs> See, I find that really interesting as well that people are, uh, are messing you for um, the audio version. And obviously, it's not a criticism of your work because, as I say, I'm, I'm a big fan. But the. What books are they asking for? Because it tends to be, from what I've seen, that shorter works don't work so well in audio because people who get the Audible credit want to spend that one free credit a month on a larger work to make that that value um, as much as it can be. So is that is that on sort of your novels or are they actually asking for some of your novellas as well?
0: Everything. Huh? I mean, what's what's funny is that the most recent one is all about the, the collection, We Live Inside Your Eyes, which, uh, you know, it's a short story collection. And I know that other more prominent authors like Stephen King and everything, they they do audiobooks of, of their stories because everyone will buy them. And I'm just not yet convinced that if I, if I went and did that or found somebody interested in doing it, that it would be that biggest seller for the very reasons that you just pointed out the only ones that people have been interested in publishing wise have been um, the novels. Mm. And I think so far we've only got currency of souls and kin and the turtle boy available in audio. Um, so I don't know. Plus, and I write more shorter stuff than long, so it, I don't know what kind of, or, or how, um, how great a proposition that is for, an interested publisher like they usually want you know oh give us your 12 novels i'm like okay well i only have five and the sixth (laughs) one is killing me so i don't know
1: my first audiobook that i listened to when i decided because i used to cycle to work um when i was at my day job and i missed out because i used to read on the bus and I, i missed out on that massively so i was like okay i'll convert to audiobooks and one one thing that i'd say to anyone who's thinking of starting to listen to audiobooks is maybe don't start with stephen king's It. Because that's a forty-six hour audiobook. And after Oh my yeah, god. So after about 20, 24 hours, I think I managed to make it through, I did get absolutely sick of the narrator's voice. Um but that was also <laughs> before I discovered that you can speed up the the rate of the audio. So I probably could have made it to about thirty-seven if I had had it on one and a half.
0: How do you mean speed up the rate of the audio? Does it make it sound like they're on helium? Or? No,
1: somehow it, it actually—you <laughs> think so, but it somehow controls the balance. I don't know how it works, um, but I've actually you can hmm. actually train yourself to the point where you can listen to things faster. I don't know whether it's healthy or not, um, but I do it now with podcasts of people I listen to and other audio books. I'm up to about two times speed that I can I can listen to um, other people's works.
0: See that's my problem though. I can't. I don't. There's nobody that I know that I would want to listen to for forty plus hours <laughs> in my life. So I'm not going to spend money to hear some stranger talking to me for forty hours, unless it's a doctor telling me everything's fine <laughs> and it's taken him a really, really long time to tell me. <laughs> I, and even then, I'm probably going to
1: register a complaint after. More than likely, or die in the process as he's telling you
0: yeah yeah, couldn't he have texted me Jesus everybody <laughs>
1: wants to talk now yeah. now um, I'd be remiss if we didn't start talking a little bit about social media because you're um, I don't know how you view yourself but you seem to be doing very very well on on your social media platforms in terms of drawing interest from crowds sort of raising the profile of some of your books particularly at this time of year I was on your Instagram story earlier and it's flooded with people that are reading your books and tagging you into pictures and, and things like that what's your relationship with social media You know, it's
0: very interesting, actually, because I don't honestly know that I did anything uh, to cultivate that on Instagram outside of just using it. And if there's anything I can put down to maybe something that, um, I don't know, maintained people's interest strictly on Instagram um, was I just started talking to the people who were talking about my books. I notice when somebody posts a review of your stuff, and I know I know the whole don't interact with reviewers <laughs> thing, but I'm not even necessarily talking about that. I'm talking about people who posted pictures uh, that they had bought a copy of one of my books. And I would see that, you know, the vanity name search on yourself <laughs> and you see that pop up and it. I would go in and say, of course, and anyone who tells you to have not is a sack of shit liar. <laughs> um, because it's the only way, sometimes, to keep a pulse on it. to know what's happening. You know, I mean, obviously, someone says, "Hey, that Keelan Patrick Burke deserves to be murdered in cold blood or thrown off a building or something." I'd be like, "Okay, I don't disagree, but I'm not going to comment on it." Um, but when I see pictures of things like that, and the pictures are really amazing, and I will just go and say, so "This is a fantastic picture. Thank you so much." And I didn't think that that was doing anything extraordinary or or you know, that every other writer didn't do. But people responded to that. I, I don't know if it was just that they weren't accustomed to hearing from people or they think I'm bigger than I am. I don't my doctor actually does as well because I always say I'm five eleven. He's not <laughs> six foot. So it's a common you know recurring theme in my life, I Danville, I'll leave that yep. there. But um <laughs> it's uh <laughs> yeah that really, really nearly went Very nearly. I, I just Yeah, that's what she said. Um, (laughs) I just try to engage as much as possible with people who buy my books, because I think, you know, if you're not being paid to go on book tours across the country, then and you, you operate strictly within the indie framework, then social media is it for you. You have to engage with people. It's nice to engage with people. As long as you don't come across as, you know, shaming people into liking your books or oh i see you bought my book please tell everybody that you know about it thank you very much you're sincerely the you know egotistical author it's just nice to acknowledge that people are acknowledging your work and i think on instagram it's easy because people take such phenomenal pictures and they're so freaking enthusiastic about yeah. it you know they love a good Picture. They love a good book, obviously. That comes first, but they love to take creative pictures of them, and it's astonishing the lengths they'll sometimes go to to get a really effective picture. And it's impossible for me, regardless of whatever the rules might be today, to not acknowledge that. I mean, that's where all the love comes from, and it does have the effect of there are days where I wake up and I think, "Well, I am a total fraud. I, I hate my life. I hate the, what am I doing? Why Why are people buying my books?" And I will go on there and see twenty six pictures of my books that people took with radiating enthusiasm and love for the book. And then suddenly I'm like,
1: you know what, maybe I don't suck. And I think that was reflected in the forward to um, We Live In Your Eyes, that you actually dedicated that book to the Bookstagram community on Instagram.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a number of effects that things like that have. Is When people are so interested in the visual aspect of a book, literally judging a book by its cover, it gives me further impetus then to be more creative and, and to create more striking covers because I want it not just to be a good book. That's the primary thing. I want it to look good, but I also want to be, you know, want to make it easier for them to have a cue where they can take creative pictures with them. If my next book cover is a, just a blank thing with the name on it, then nobody's going to want to take pictures of it. So these are all things that I think come with the social media age directly. You know, um, it's gone from having a a book look nice on a shelf in a bookstore, maybe sandwiched between other books, to looking good on thumbnail on Amazon, to looking good on a reader's shelf who's going to take a picture of that and show it to 22,000 followers. Mm. That's your advertising. It's free advertising. And it's not people you're asking to do it. It's people who want to do it because they love the work. It's a cyclical thing. It goes around and
1: perpetuates itself and it's an of endless
0: benefit i think for everybody
1: involved so how much of a thought do you give to the actual bookstagram community or instagram or social media in its in general when when designing a cover because you design most of your own covers don't you Yeah, yeah all of them so how much of a thought do you give to that is that a deliberate thing or is that more just sort of ticking away in the background as a minor component when you are designing your covers that it should be instagrammable I
0: don't. I mean I'd love to say that I do, but I don't. I, when I'm when I'm designing a cover it's just like writing a book. I do it for myself first. I have to it has to please me. If I step back from what I've done and I think it's a good representation of the book, it's visually striking. But I mean in that regard what I want from the cover is what bookstagrammers want from the cover too. We both want it to look spectacular. We we want it to be a book where you just look at it and think, well, uh, I got to take a picture of this. You know, and especially as many books are as are out there. And because Instagram is such a visual media, you have to make it stand out. But by that same metric, the covers I design have to be designed so that a reader will see it in thumbnail on Amazon and have it strike them as worth, worthy of note. So it's all the same. I mean, and, and I think if I'm really, really happy with how my cover turns out, the likelihood is that so will everyone who sees it.
1: must work out well because obviously you are your own audience and as a, a lifelong horror lover, you know exactly what it is you're looking for. So then that just bleeds out to the rest of your fan base who have been cultivated around the same sort of stuff that you enjoy because obviously that's what you put into your work.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in the absence of having access to... Um, great artists like Bernie Wrights and, you know, and Les Edwards and all those people. um, I am forced to use only what I have in my toolkit and it's a constant drive to try and push myself further than I think I can go. But that's the same with writing too. With any creative endeavor, I'll never be good enough to satisfy myself. I'll always want to push further and faster. And the last book I wrote is already fading in my rear view because it had problems I didn't see. I'm on to the next one and this has to be better and so will the next one and I will die never having been good enough but that's fine because that's what you know creativity is you ever decide that's it yay I'm fantastic I'm the best writer ever time to time to throw yourself off a bridge
1: one of the things I love about this interview particularly is the fact that you are literally going through my checklist of things I wanted to talk to you about in order without me having to cue it, it's, it's, it's perfect. So uh-huh. we will get onto to um, a bit of your design <laughs> stuff in a second. But one thing um, you did say a minute ago that I just wanted to pick up on it and maybe pick apart a bit more, just because, um, again, it comes back to the process. It comes back to sort of mentality when you're writing. Is uh, you, were, you were speaking about days when you do feel like a fraud. And obviously, um, a lot of people... Uh, I'm trying to remember what the word is, that people have... Um, imposter syndrome. So a lot of people who are in this kind of industry suffer from that. Um, And it's almost impossible to believe that someone like yourself who has been writing for so many years um, has an audience built around you is still successful in what they do still suffers from that. So I don't know if you can kind of talk a little bit about anything that you know about why you might still feel that and how that process looks and how you do recover from, from imposter syndrome.
0: Oh man, I mean, if I could do that, I would write a book just <laughs> based on that. It'd be a self-help book and it would be an absolute you know bestseller tomorrow because everybody I know, every writer I know goes through it at some point. And it's been with me since I was a kid, before I had a name for it, before there was a name for it. It was just this, there were days where I, you know, 12 years of age, writing these fantastical stories in my notebook thinking, you know what, this is the best thing ever. I am going to be Stephen King. And then there were days where I thought, why am I writing these? I'm just writing them in a notebook and nobody's ever going to read them. And if they do, they're going to hate them. And while obviously the psychology has changed, there's still days where I, I will read back on something I've written and think, wow, holy shit, that is the best thing I have ever written. And I, I, I will believe that. And I don't think it's not true at the time. But it's getting the rest of the book <laughs> to, to measure up to that. That has always been a challenge for me because I don't know if it's complacency. I don't know if it's um, that self-doubt that gets in the way. But I'm always less confident in the end result than I was at those little moments in which I thought, yeah, this is why I do this. This is why I'm a writer because I can fucking write and that looks good. But overall, once it's done, I always have this disheartening moment in which I think, well, I don't know what I have here, but I'm going to err on the side of it being dog shit. And then when people respond to it with enthusiasm and, you know, my first readers read it and they're like, Jesus, this is great. I'm delighted and relieved and I can actually get on with the business of selling the book because it doesn't (laughs) suck. But I'm not entirely sure, honestly, that I've ever believed anybody who told me they thought the book was great. I think they enjoyed it and I'm not questioning that they the veracity of what they're saying. I just don't feel it in a way that kind of buoys my heart enough for me to think going forward that, well, great, I'm I'm fantastic at this. So this next book is gonna be easy. I might think it for short periods of time and get those little bursts of elation here and there. The victories always make up for it, the little things that happen, you know, in my career that keep me going but there'll still be Monday mornings. I get up with a cup of coffee and I'm sitting there, excuse me. And I'm looking at the page and the page is laughing at me and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm a fraud. And so I don't know how to get over it. The only way that I do know to get over it is to tell her to shut the fuck up and write anyway, because that is ultimately our business. It's why we're here. And the reality of that is that the only thing worse than imposter syndrome is waking up one morning without the skills to write anymore, without the drive to write anymore, without the ability to write anymore, because I honestly don't know who that would make me if I didn't have it, but probably nothing good. (laughs) And I'm not, I'm not talking about just, oh, well, you know, well, why don't you just go out and get a job? I've had friggin' dozens of jobs. It's not that. It's not about how to make money. It's about Mm -hmm. how to be you. And without writing, I don't think that I could be.
1: I think that's a, uh, it is a difficult process because, when you are writing and even when you're editing or at any point, you're only looking at one section of a book. And obviously the bigger that work gets, the less control you feel like you have. I mean, I fully, um, I was nodding my head when you were saying about certain parts where you, you're in that flow. You feel like everything you're writing is fantastic. And then you can go on a few pages and then suddenly that, that feeling's gone. Um, obviously your dog gets that as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, she does. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. No,
1: I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah no I can completely attest to that and I do wonder sometimes whether it is that fact that no matter what you're writing you tend to be stuck almost in a microscopic view of the whole um I know myself for one the one story that I've written that I feel has been probably my best work to date is a is a short 1000 word story that just came out of me it was it was easy it just flowed I love it I've just I finished it I didn't have to do much editing um but
0: but, it's not long enough for you to get in your own way
1: exactly so you can see the whole thing whereas if that maybe had been blown up into a a 10 15 20k novella that might have been a bit of a different story do you think maybe that might be a a component of it
0: yeah definitely i mean there's there's some stories out there that i just know are fun you know i don't have the ego to say oh that's a fantastic story that's a great story Mm -hmm. i kind of tend to measure this stuff with how much fun i have and how Easy it was to write. How effortless the process was, mm-hmm. and that does happen. Sour Candy, I was barely even there for it. That just wrote itself. Um, conversely, a novella like Blanky was absolute torture because of what the themes are. Um, I didn't struggle with the plot. I just struggled with wanting to write it because it's such a fucking downer of a book. Uh, Kin was easy. Master of the Moors was not. You know, it, it depends, but I think always more fondly back on the ones that were fun to write. Because while I don't really get to control how much fun I have doing it, and I don't think it's a good measure of the quality of a project, I certainly do think more fondly on the ones that I just sat there like a seal slapping my hands on the keyboard and these fucking words were flying out and everybody had a good time when they read it. Mm. That's basically the job. But I mean, to go back to what you said, the smaller ones are always easy. We we get so obsessed with the intricacies of it all, about the mechanics, how the innards work, and you know, the mechanism of the process. It's like you've bought a, a house and you're going around checking the the, the sills and the <laughs> the mantles and you, you know where the portraits are hung and that they're all straight. And then when you put it out there, everybody's looking at it from fucking space. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, the roof's kind of a bit crooked, and you're like, "Well, son of a bitch, that was the one thing I didn't see. I was so focused (laughs) on the inside of it." But it is. It's. It's like we get so into it. But I mean, that's. I, I think to go back to the whole imposter syndrome thing, it's not necessarily a bad thing, because you should be aware of every single cell that makes up what you're doing. You know, I mean, you're creating something that people are going to want to pay money for. Why shouldn't you labor over it? Why shouldn't you torture yourself over it? It can be fun, but there are going to be days where you question your own worth as a writer. And I don't know any other career where you you don't do the same thing. We just get buried in it, and we have instant access to a community of people who nodded knowingly and say, "Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the that's the fucking anchor. It's the albatross, man. Mm-hmm. You just learn to walk with differently with that weight around your neck."
1: <laughs> let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your your design company, Elder Lemon Design. Um, obviously you design a lot of covers for other authors now. I was on your website earlier. You've got lots of pre-mades there. What relationship does your cover design have in partnership with your writing and how do you you balance the two the two crafts?
0: Well, uh, one kind of beget the other. What it was, was when I started doing, uh, when I finally, because I, I am a late bloomer, when I finally decided, okay, this digital thing seems to be legit and everybody's doing it, so I should do it. I started looking up covers and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm broke. There's no way I can pay for, for decent cover art. And I always had a passing acquaintance with, um, Photoshop. So I just said, well, let me see what I can do with some good images. And, you know, then I started to teach myself through mostly through online videos, the techniques of, okay, it's not enough to just have a picture and slap some words on it. It it looks amateurish. I knew that very early because they were, but, um, so I just kept pushing and learning more and looking up the, the tutorials and the tricks of how to make them look actually closer to movie posters than, than generic book covers. And somewhere in the middle, then I landed perfectly on that place where they looked like good book covers. And almost immediately I started getting asked by other writers who did the covers for me. And when I told them I did them, they asked if I do theirs. Um, I started doing them for free and quickly realized that that was mm-hmm. ridiculous and, but yeah, and it just kind of took off from there, but it was, you know, economic necessity that kind of goaded me into, into picking that up as a, an additional, uh, creative Avenue. It served the purpose. It all served the beam. Like I say, <laughs> it's, uh, it needed to be done because I couldn't afford to do it otherwise. Yeah. So I would say that that's, that was kind of, you know, one started the other out of necessity. And then as time went on, more people started asking me to do their covers. I got better at it. And um, yeah, uh, the process is very different, obviously, because one is visual. Um, It just has to look good. And I I am constantly playing around with elements that go for familiar and comforting to the reader, uh, the genre reader, but at the same time trying to kind of push it into new creative directions. Mm -hmm. But I don't live in the house of cover design like i do in the house of writing i mean that's a place where you just break the locks when you move in and sit there for months with book covers to me it's just okay let's make something pretty yeah
1: so how does that work when you are nose deep in your keyboard working on a project because it sounds like you do get swept away with a story so have there ever been times where that balance has been hard to achieve because you are knee-deep in this story but you know that you've got a couple of covers that you need to design how do you how do you balance that
0: it actually hasn't always been easy there's been times where i've gotten incredibly busy with cover design and like anything i mean cover design has essentially become a day job for Mm -hmm. me um it's the same as when i worked in fraud investigating or any other job where stories were on my mind and i just was driven insane with the need to to write them um, but you find the balance because I do enjoy cover design. If I if I didn't, I wouldn't do it. But what I do is I tend to get myself to a point in a story where I know I can safely break off and, or write my quota for the day and spend the night doing the book covers. Mm. I, it took me a long time to find a balance I was happy with, but
1: if you want to, you can make anything work. Absolutely. I find, uh, I find particularly horror covers very, very interesting at the minute because there seems to be depending on which subcategory of horror you're looking at, there are very generic covers and a lot of people it looks like are trying to work along a particular theme. Um, but then it seems to be that there's this wave of covers that are influenced quite heavily by old style horror and it's sort of the, the cracked covers and the the flaky edges. And yeah. that seems to be a style that you've sort of adopted. Do you take your influence from any particular people? Is that is that sort of just the the um style that you're, you're happy playing in
0: i will say that what what it was for me is i started seeing movie covers doing that mm, okay long be- long before it was in vogue you know when people were starting to i can't even remember what the first one i saw was only that the whole thing was red and black but it was i think it was a black silhouette of a house or something and it had the marquee poster uh, frame around it and it had it was all cracked and worn and stressed and i just thought you know what it immediately took me back to going into video stores as a kid um and looking at those big chunky Vhs boxes and how they were all torn inside the thing and they'd been there for you know longer than i had and i just loved it and once the whole retro explosion happened in everything from movie aesthetics onwards I started noticing people were doing books as well and getting away with it. Nobody was saying, oh, you know, that's shitty. So I uh, I kind of embraced the idea and I, I liked playing around with it. And plus, I just don't think that this style of art that we've employed on our books and movies over the past 10, 20 years matches what came before it. There was a, and it just directly appeals to me and my adolescence too, where I grew up with that whole. 80s thing where you know cheesy horror and lurid cover art and it was fun to do those it was fun to try and achieve the same effect with new images you had to rip them up and have them look all like something i would pick up in a in a bookstore on a rainy sunday afternoon or something i just i don't know and then everybody else seemed to be engaged by the same idea that you know nostalgia is in right now we all yearn to go backwards So what could I do but oblige? Mm.
1: Well, we are coming up to the end of our time together. We've just got a couple more sections to get through. Um, So if you don't mind, I'm going to ask some questions from our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash great writers share. So actually two questions from Ian J. Middleton. The first one being, when it comes to writing horror, what do you find is the most enjoyable and what is the most challenging aspect?
0: I'd say the answer, um, the answer could be the same step, but the most enjoyable for me is creating the villain, the, or the scares themselves. Mm-hmm. I love that. There's a scene that I'm writing right now um, where a woman goes in to check on her children in this stone blocky house on an island in 1936. And there's been a series of pretty weird events leading up to this, but she's calling it a night. She's been up all night. It's time to go to sleep. She just wants to check on the children and she looks in and the description of the room mimics a room I stayed in when I was a child for one weekend and it terrified me then. And this terrifies me now, but the children are both sitting bolt upright in bed looking at her and their faces are like eggs that have been shattered on the outside and they're just trailing, dripping seaweed. Oh, wow as as they're looking at her going, we're drowning, mommy. And the light and the shadow and the visual of all of that just gave me such a fucking dose of the heaps that I thought, you know what, yeah, this is people are going to love this because I had to get up and walk away <laughs> from it. So, yep. But I love that. I, I mean, it's the same reason that I read horror books or I watch a horror movie. I'm so jaded by it all from 40-something years of doing it and, and being exposed to it that the ones that impress me most are the ones that absolutely get under my skin and I'm, I have to shake it off like Jesus. So I endeavor to do that for people. And it, it is such fun to have a scene where, you know, something's coming, but you haven't figured it out yet. And the process becomes, all right, what can I show you visually? You haven't seen a million times before that if you saw it would fuck you up right there in the moment so that is the most fun because i can literally do anything it's where your imagination is given free reign you can sit down and say all right i have to scare myself now and in the process i'm going to scare you as well there's something so sadistically I love wonderful that. about that oh my god it's yeah. delicious i absolutely adore particularly
1: it the, the um, longer that you write and obviously you'll you'll you are sort of further ahead in your career than i am um I do constantly feel like I'm trying to challenge myself to to get that and it becomes harder and harder because the more you read the more you expose yourself to the more not numb but the more mute that becomes to you so actually find those nuggets those moments is is a thrill.
0: Yeah oh, it is the thrill yeah that that's that's the reason we do it mm-hmm. a lot of time. And to answer the other part about um the most challenging that's also That answer still applies there too, because it isn't always easy. You do have an awful lot of genre history behind you where you just don't want to either repeat what other people have done or worse, repeat yourself. Yeah. Um, but a better answer, I think, would be <clears throat> building the world and the characters to make it so relatable, so lifelike, so authentic that the scares when they come actually reson- resonate and don't just lie there dead on the page. Because scares will only work. You can describe anything you want, but they don't work if you don't care about the people enduring them. Yeah, 100%. Uh,
1: Ian asks again, and I think we covered a little bit of this, but we might be able to get a little <clears throat> bit more out of that as well. Uh, do you have a particular process when it comes to designing covers?
0: Um, I work with the, the writer in getting a sense of what they want. <clears throat> that tends to be challenging too, because a, the writer doesn't always know what they want. And I know I've been there too. <clears throat> Excuse me. But, um, it's, it's to get from the thing that they're envisioning to get as close as you can to that in the design, um, without being able to read their mind, you know, it's, it's tough. That's incredibly challenging. But once I have that, I get an idea of that in my head and I seek out the components. Then usually stock photography or I take the photographs myself um, to basically create a jigsaw puzzle um, in the design software that when finished looks like something that you'd expect to walk in and see in the store. It it isn't always easy. It depends on the
1: concept too. Uh, I have one more question to ask myself, which is one that – um, I wanted to ask a little bit earlier, but what does Keelan Patrick Burke, who is a well-revered horror writer, do for his Halloween? How does he celebrate Halloween? Oh, wow.
0: Um,
1: well, for the first year ever, because I didn't cook
0: this time last year, and, and now I'm obsessed with it as another creative endeavor, is uh, I cook a lot of, or I'm going to, a lot of Halloween-y things this year. Lots of weird brownies and shit. Um, and we like to get some a few fancy things to decorate the house but then we go and hit all of the thrift stores because what i've just realized is that the last time we were in one there was this antique looking stuffed kid type toy that looked like it, it was from the 1920s that was 50 cents and no matter what I did after seeing that, I couldn't get it out of my head, so I have to go back and get that. <laughs> but I'm going to find all the freakiest shit imaginable. Not your typical Halloween fair where it's like, you know, a scarecrow or a whatever. I'm going to get the most bizarre shit that I can find and just festoon. And also, up until this year, I didn't live in a house that had um, a view out on the neighborhood. It was always shielded by something. that was a wall or was something else, so... Whatever you did wouldn't be seen. So this'll be the first year it will, and I intend to take advantage of it.
1: You're gonna scare the crap out of some kids.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then I'll <laughs> dress up myself. I don't know what I'm thinking of doing the whole plague doctor thing or something and oh. just answer the door and, you know, scare the absolute shit out of people.
1: That is one of my favorite horror themes, to be honest. I love Me too, that, yeah. That look is just there's something about it that just gets gets under your skin.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then of course there's the traditional pumpkins. Um mm-hmm. I say traditional, but when I lived in Ireland we never never once did anything with pumpkins it was always carving uh turnips and shit wow which is which is a freaking nightmare if you've ever done it <laughs> Cut, it's it's, it's it's like trying to to carve your initials in a brick wall it's just <laughs> bullshit
1: and then you do you still have candles in the middle of those uh you, like birthday cardigan.
0: birthday candles they look <laughs> fucking ridiculous
1: <laughs> you, so has that changed in ireland are they still are they still doing that you know what,
0: I've seen posts from people in Ireland now where it's all pumpkins, it's all, the how like we always decorated, but yeah, it looks like, you know, they're giving, giving you Merkins a run for your money.
1: Finally, finally made it, made it happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I don't know, where are you? Are you in the States or are you still in i No, I'm,
1: I'm in the uh, in the Midlands of England. All right. And what do you guys do for Halloween? Um, Same? Yeah, pretty much. we got pumpkins that we put in the windowsills, get some trick-or-treaters around, um, knocking at the doors. And yeah, I mean, my son is, he'll be five next month. So he's come out to a point where he's really starting to, and actually it's, it's something I've never pushed on my son, but he absolutely is mad for Halloween because he gets a to dressed as a bat. Um, (laughs) Nice. Yeah. And he's, it's really bizarre because I've, I've not really exposed him to any of the the horror stuff that, that I exist around, but he seems to automatically just been drifting towards stuff. And even with, uh, the fact he's mad for pokemon at the minute but he loves the pokemon ghosts specifically
0: you see all the signs are there
1: it's it's gonna happen i've got, I've got a protege <laughs>
0: you' you've raised him well my friend
1: i have <laughs> uh, um so now the final part of the round sadly is uh going into the quick fire round which i'm trying to remember we did have the quick fire round last time you were on the show didn't we
0: we did i always
1: hate these yes well (laughs) i've tried to make this a bit nicer for you um and center it a bit more around rather than go as random as i normally have with some of the other rounds i figured because you're a horror writer because halloween is coming up we'll kind of stick a bit more with with your sort of wheelhouse of horror um okay so if you're ready to go i can get bashing on with the questions sure perfect halloween or nightmare on elm street halloween when was the last time you trick-or-treated
0: oh jesus uh 20 years ago uh
1: you've already had. no no that's not true sorry it wasn't
0: it was 10 years ago
1: you've already answered the next question but i'll ask it anyway have you ever Shit. scared yourself with your own writing yes do you prefer writing or cover design writing who's your favorite writer of all time oh christ
0: um <laughs> john steinbeck
1: what was the last book you read
0: Uh, The last book I read was East of Eden by John
1: Steinbeck. (laughs) Nice. It matches. (laughs) What's the scariest monster you've encountered, either real or fictional?
0: Oh, God. I hate these questions. Um, Real or fictional? Fictional, I would say The Judge from um, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Okay.
1: Uh, What's your dream holiday destination?
0: Anywhere that isn't
1: cold. How many bones have you broken? None. Lucky. What's your Halloween anthem? Let's all go to the lobby. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. That's all 10 questions. Oh, thank God! Fantastic. All right. <laughs> yeah, bust through that one. I think we actually made made it a bit more difficult for you last time. I'll have to uh, d- dig out the old interview and see what the question.
0: I are. don't know. I mean, anything that you ask me quickly, it makes me feel like I'm I'm in this the in front of the House Committee trying to answer for war crimes or something. <laughs> I don't know
1: why I get so tangled up in it. I'm always interested to see what would happen if I move this round to the beginning of the show just to get, oh, get people on edge. I think it will it would change some of the way that people responded to their answers.
0: It might, but I mean, it also is probably a good thing because it gets, you know, it gets the the thoughts going. I'm always dreading when I come on and do interviews that I'm on a sluggish day and my answers will be just so fucking boring, you know? (laughs) So
1: So why do you write? Because. That's it crickets yeah <laughs> you add like crickets and posts it'll be fine <laughs> oh lovely <laughs> <laughs> awesome well thank you very much keelan for joining us it's been absolutely fantastic and i uh, appreciate all the time that you've put into me asking you questions and just blabbering on at me for an hour it's been wonderful where can people find more about yourself and your work and everything you're doing
0: uh the website is usually the the best bet it's a hub to everything else so just my name.com um it's all there, or the various social media places. It's again just my name. Um, the biggest challenge will be trying to spell it correctly because there are days in which even <laughs> I can't do that. But uh, yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, not so much Facebook anymore. I kind of I'm duty bound because there are people there who I talk to who seem to be committed to not talking to me anyplace else. <laughs> yeah, but honestly, I kind of hate it these days. So my my main places are Twitter and Instagram
1: perfect so thank you very much once again and thank you everyone for listening and i will see you next week thanks daniel thanks for listening to this week's episode of the great writer share podcast next week we'll be joined by the international best-selling author michael brent collings discussing his recent ted talk his creative writing empire and how he successfully manages to genre hop don't forget you can get early access to every episode of the great writer's share podcast as well as a chance to ask upcoming guests any of your questions just by becoming a patron of the show all you need to do is visit www.patreon.com forward slash great writer's share and support the show for as little as one dollar a month one more time that's www.patreon.com forward slash great writer's share until next time ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, y'all, this is Kenya, creative director and co founder of Domino Sound. And this is Alexandra De Palma, executive producer and co founder of Domino Sound. And we're a queer, disabled, black woman owned podcast production company and network creating authentic, inclusive, provocative content. We just launched Domino Presents, which is a new series of special audio projects. The premiere episode features the founders of Poppy Juice, the queer art collective throwing the hottest parties in New York City and around the world. We also recommend The Cheat Code, our hit 10-episode audio soap opera surrounding a love affair. Think Love & Hip Hop meets The Affair meets The Sopranos. Follow us on IG at Domino Sound C-O to keep up. And listen to our shows on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Domino Sound. ACAST recommends.